Hello and welcome to Stock Stories, episode 87. Welcome. Welcome to the show. This is the Stock Stories Podcast, and my name is Alex, and I am your host and stock storyteller for today. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Stock Stories is the podcast dedicated to helping you, the individual investor, make better investing decisions. And we do that primarily through case studies of real companies, as well as mental models. And that latter part, mental models, that's what we're going to cover today. So we usually cover companies in the S&P 500. We look at them in depth, try to understand their business models. But on episodes like today's episode, we go through more of a philosophical discussion of some sort of concept um, or thought experiment. And that's what we have today. So without further ado, Let's get into the mental model of the law of diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns simply states that as an input increases, the output only increases incrementally less and less. So imagine that you're putting effort into something and you're getting a certain amount of output from that effort. Well, you keep putting in more and more effort, but you're only getting a little bit more out of whatever you're doing. So an example might be helpful. So let's say that you're studying for a test and you have a big exam coming up. Well, maybe if you study a couple hours for that test over a period of a few days, that's really going to improve your performance. But let's say that you just go overboard and you study for several hours every day for an entire week. Sure, you'll do better than if you had just studied for a few days for a few hours, but the amount that you have will, would do better based on that massive amount of studying wouldn't necessarily be be proportional to the effort that you expended, right? Because after a certain point, you know, let's say that if you study for a few hours over a couple days, you would get a B plus or maybe even an A minus. But after studying extensively, you would get a perfect score. Well, there's not that much difference between an A minus and an A plus or say a B plus and an A plus. Sure, there is a difference and one score is better than the other, but based on the amount of time that you had to spend studying for that test, it's not proportional to your effort at that point. So your effort is only rewarded incrementally less and less the more effort you expend. That is the law of diminishing returns. So this just goes to show that when we do different things in life or observe different things in the world and the universe, we can observe this law in action. When things 
happen, they don't necessarily happen in a linear straight path or they don't in an exponential path either. It's more of a logarithmic curve. If you're familiar with that mathematical function, you kind of go up quickly and then you curve over and then you sort of plateau, you sort of flatten out over time. So as your inputs increase, your outputs increase, but incrementally so, and not in a way that's proportional to the input. Another example, think about blowing up a balloon. So if you're blowing up a balloon, at first, a few puffs increases the balloon's size significantly. But later, when the balloon is mostly blown up already, it takes similar effort to produce just small increases in the balloon size. So you're blowing up the balloon and you're huffing and puffing. You actually have to put more pressure into the balloon to get it to increase by the same volume as you did initially when you were, you're stretching that rubber elasticity at the outset. So that's just one example. Another example from biology of the law of diminishing returns. So let's say that you bring a plant home and you plant the seed and you put it in the soil and you give it water and sunshine, right? Because that's what plants need to grow. So you water the plant and give it some sunshine. But if you water it too much, is it going to grow faster? No, it has certain limits based on the biological makeup of the seed and the genes and cells within the seed that allow it to germinate and then sprout and take root, it can only grow so much so fast. It's just a law of nature. So yes, you do have to water it, but if you water it excessively or give it excessive sunshine, the process of creating chlorophyll will not speed up more than a certain amount or at a certain rate and the process of germination won't happen beyond a certain rate because there are just natural limits to the speed with which the cell the cells work. Um, so that's just another example from biology. You can put inputs into something, but you won't necessarily get everything out of it based on what you put in. So let's take this over to the finance realm. So you may have heard about this study about life satisfaction and happiness and money. So there was a study a few years ago that became very popular in the mainstream media, at least in the, here in the United States. And it basically said that once you reach $70,000 in income, your happiness was no longer proportional to how much money you made. Sure, there were some increases in happiness if you made, say, six figures or beyond that, but the amount of happiness that you gained passed around 70,000 US dollars a year only incrementally increased your happiness. And this was a really interesting study because it's very prevalent in our culture to talk about and discuss and to feel that we need to make more money because we need to increase our happiness, right? Increase our material wealth should proportionally increase our happiness. But that's not necessarily the case, right? I mean, there's different levels. There's, there's levels to everything. So if you're destitute and extremely poor and 
all of a sudden you get a job making $30,000 a year, well, that's a major come up, right? You're going from having nothing to being able to actually pay bills for basic living expenses. And if you go from, say, $30,000 a year to $50,000 a year, well, that's, that's a pretty good increase. That's a pretty good come up. Okay, you can start affording probably a lot of luxuries, especially in American culture where so there's so much convenience. I mean, it's, it blows my mind every day when I walk around and I look around and I'm out shopping and, and buying things, how convenient and how affordable so many things are, especially in large urban areas. Um, there's just, there's just so much abundance. Um, and so imagine going from 30,000 to 50,000, that's a pretty good increase, but it's not necessarily the same level of lifestyle increase as you would get going from, from say $10,000 a year to $30,000 a year. Sure. The increase is still $20,000 a year, but you're getting a lot more out of it going from 10,000 to 30,000, um, just because of the relativity. So let's take this a step further. Let's say you're going from 50,000 to 70,000. Again, a nice increase. Probably can afford a lot of luxuries within American society. Um, Maybe move to uh, a more expensive apartment or purchase a more expensive home. Whatever the lifestyle situation is, there are more options available to you at that level. But once you keep going beyond that, it's you start getting less and less for every incremental dollar. So let's just go ahead and fast forward this to an extreme. Let's say that you and I make $1 million a year, which is amazing. <laughs> $1 million a year. And there are people out there, make no mistake, who make millions of dollars a year. So Let's say you and I make $1 million a year. Well, what would we change about our lifestyle? Okay, we might live in a nicer home. We might eat nicer foods. The quality of our furnishings and our clothes might be top notch. But people spend their money on different things. So I'm just giving an example here. These are just the things that I think about. Uh, We might give a lot more to charity. We, I don't know, might take private jets and do things like that. But imagine all of a sudden now we make $10 million a year. Okay. Wow. Like this is absolutely incredible. $10 million a year. What would we, what would we even do with that amount of money? Right? Like I know for me and for a lot of people, that's just a lot of money to wrap our heads around even just to think about the possibility of making that much in a year. Well, would our lifestyle change that much from earning $1 million a year? I don't know. Maybe it would. Maybe we would just scale some things up a little bit more. Maybe live in a little bit nicer house or, or give more money away. But is there really that much of a lifestyle difference between someone who makes a million dollars a year and $10 million a year? probably very little difference. I mean, at that level, you you already have access to the best that society has to offer as far as luxurious goods or experiences. Um, those doors are probably already open if you have that kind of financial um, output. So 
The point here is that when you take it to an extreme, either at the lower end of the income spectrum or the higher end of the income spectrum, you can see how there are significant differences in increase in lifestyle or potential increase in lifestyle, and which demonstrates the law of diminishing returns. So in our stock portfolios, we're going to have significant gains over time if we're studying and we're learning how to invest better year over year over year. But at the end of the day, and hopefully, and this is the goal, right? We're, we're going to have enough money in our stock portfolios where it doesn't really matter too much to our actual lifestyle whether or not our stocks continue to increase at a nice rate of return, we're still going to be fine because we have enough to support our, the lifestyle that we want to live. And remember, the whole purpose of building wealth is to live the life that you want to live here on this earth. And, and money is just a tool that enables that in one way or another. So I looked at a different study than the one that I mentioned a few minutes ago. This study was from Nature, in, and it came out in June 2018. So the Nature publication uh, by the authors Jeb, Tay, Diener, and Oishi. And it talks about life satisfaction. So life satisfaction or satiation tends to plateau with income. So from their research, subjective well-being seems to peak at around $105,000 in North America. So higher than those $70,000 that was mentioned in the study that came out a few years ago. And the numbers are different for other global populations, but the trends are the same. And this data came from 1.7 million data points from the Gallup World Poll. So that's the source of this information. So you may have different results if you live in Phoenix, Arizona versus New York City versus St. Louis, Missouri versus Hong Kong versus Manila in the Philippines. Every place is going to have its own cost of living and different potential for spending. Uh, if you've ever moved from a medium to small size city and moved to a larger city, you probably intuitively understand this like there are certain things you just can't get or can't spend on even if you did have the money in the smaller city that you can now have the potential to spend on in the larger city so there's a lot of diminishing returns to how much you can spend too based on where you are geographically so let's take this into the investing realm a little bit deeper so other than just talking about income let's talk about your portfolio. Let's talk about portfolio construction and diversification. So if you start adding stocks and you're building up your stock portfolio, you are becoming diversified, right? Hopefully, hopefully you are eliminating correlated risk by investing in different industries and different types of businesses that um, have different, don't have the same revenue drivers for growth. So removing correlated risk is a really big part of portfolio construction that can't be something that shouldn't be ignored. And assuming you're doing all of that and you're building up this portfolio, you're becoming increasingly diversified. And this is awesome. So imagine you start with one stock, right? Because everybody starts with a single position 
And then you slowly build that up to five positions, 10 positions. Maybe after a few years, you've built this up to 20 or 30 positions of different stocks in varying amounts. Well, this is great. You're diversified. But imagine if you kept going. Uh, you keep going to 40, 50 positions. And then imagine after, let's say, a 10-year period of just buying stocks here and there, you end up with a portfolio of over 70 to 80 stocks. Okay, well, that's a lot of stocks. And you may be incredibly diversified. But the thing about this is the more diversified you become and the more different types of stocks that you own, you significantly increase the chances of mimicking the market itself, right? Because you're now producing this basket of equities that is from different industries. And what is, what is an index fund, right? An index fund is exactly that. It's a collection of companies from different industries sliced up into tiny pieces and maybe get 0.1% of a fund that's in a particular company. So maybe your percentages won't be that small for a stock that, or for a portfolio that has 70 to 80 stocks in it, but you're kind of nearing that order of magnitude as far as the percentage of, of a stock in as like your position size within the portfolio. So you're kind of like watering down the diversification. And this is something that the famous investor Peter Lynch has called diversification. <laughs> so if you have too many different types of stocks in your portfolio, you're getting diminishing returns from that principle of diversification because you're like too diversified, right? Uh, and this is why some people advocate for focused or concentrated portfolios which are usually portfolios that hold less than maybe less than 30 stocks somewhere around there. Because if you have a big winner within that portfolio, it's going to have a significantly higher influence on the overall portfolio than say someone who owns 100 stocks of equal position sizes. So my philosophy tends to be, I think somewhere in the middle uh, Benjamin Graham actually talked about this in his, in his writings in The Intelligent Investor. He recommended way back in the day, this is several decades ago now, that the invest individual investor should own a portfolio of no less than 20 and no more than 50 individual stocks or individual securities. And the reason he talked about this was because he understood that diversification is important, but it also has its limits. So you get diminishing returns the more positions that you have. And so the way that I think about this is, and my, and my portfolio doesn't have you know, 100 stocks in it or anything like that at this point, but it does have some. And I think that ultimately what's going to probably happen is will probably have maybe a couple dozen core positions and then probably, <laughs> I don't know, several dozen or a couple other dozen positions that are just really small that either never grew a lot or that I put only a small amount of money into up front just to kind of test the waters and see, see how things were going to go with this company, with this stock. 
So I imagine the total position size will, will be pretty high, but the core holdings will carry the weight of the portfolio. And then that'll ultimately determine the results of my portfolio. So I think that's kind of what's going to happen in my case and in practical sense. But the way to apply this law of diminishing returns is just know that, okay, you can only diversify so much, but also don't diversify too little by any means, because once you start getting below maybe 15, 10 stocks from an academic perspective, I know there's one study that I read where I think below 15 stocks, somewhere around there, uh, the risks increase substantially of not being diversified and there's a much higher chance of of significant losses um, if one or two of those components fail so keep that in mind and just remember that overall just because you give energy to something doesn't mean you're going to get a proportional output think about the system that you're operating under whether it's investing in a portfolio or something else in your life the amount of effort that you give into something, uh, you should be getting at least as much to, as you put in, if not more, maybe you can even leverage your efforts through different means. And so keep in mind that the law of diminishing returns is always around us and just keep an eye out for it. So that is the episode for today. And thank you so much again for listening. My name is Alex. I'm your host. Thank you for those of you who turn in, each, tune in each and every week. I appreciate your listenership. And I definitely want to hear from you. If you have an idea for the show or you have something to say about a particular stock or mental model that I mentioned, I would love to hear your thoughts. And the best way to tell me that is emailing me at alex at stockstoriespodcast.com. That's Alex at stockstoriespodcast.com or you can message me on Instagram as well at stockstories1 that's stockstories the number one all right well thank you so much and we will see you next week information presented here on stock stories is for informational educational and entertainment purposes only you and you alone are responsible for your investment and financial decisions please consult an appropriate tax legal or financial advisor that can analyze your specific situation in the context of your goals and circumstances